Welcome to the Strive Podcast, where we embark on a captivating journey through the fascinating realms of mind, medicine, and motivation. I'm Cy Munnam, a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm absolutely delighted to have you join me on my conversation with Dr. Mrs. Srinivasan. Dr. Srinivasan is an assistant professor of neurosurgery at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, treating cerebrovascular disease through microsurgical and endovascular techniques. This episode holds a special place in my heart, as Dr. Srinivasan is my mentor and PI in neurosurgery, whom I've had the privilege of shadowing in the OR on multiple occasions. He's well regarded in the department for his dedication and strive towards technical proficiency in vascular neurosurgery, and I'm excited to delve into the evolution of his technical skills development. Without further ado, allow me to introduce Dr. Mrs. Srinivasan. Would you like to add anything to that intro? No, that's great. Thank you. Thank you I'm for coming on. Here. Thank you. Um, so just starting off, uh, throughout your extensive academic career in medicine, how has your approach to learning evolved and what strategies have you found most effective in mastering complex medical concepts and surgical techniques? So uh, things sort of change. I think the, the big inflection point uh, is when you go from theoretical learning to practical learning. Um, so as you, as you start your uh, clerkships uh, in medical school, you start to realize that what you saw in the book is not um, you know, what you're actually seeing in real patients. You learn how to take a history and a physical, and then you st start talking to your first patients and you, and you realize that they may want to take the conversation in a different direction than, than you were expecting to. And you start asking them questions about their pain and uh, it doesn't quite fit the exact mold that you thought in your differential diagnosis. So that's kind of the first uh, like turn that things take from, from book learning to, to practical application in the actual clinical, the practice of, of clinical medicine. Then, um, as someone you know who went into surgery, then the next thing is is not just uh, taking that practical aspect of coming up with differential diagnosis and and talking to patients, and and thinking of things in um, in, in a clinical sense um, uh, for for medicine, but but taking it to the surgical realm and uh, having a plan and and learning how to execute that plan in surgery, and so that's also a very very kind of different thing in terms of how you learn, uh, how to do new procedures, how, how you try to teach yourself things that you um, have only seen other people do once before. Um, so see one, do one, teach one is, uh, you know, a, a common refrain, or at least it used to be in, in surgery. Um, and that's changed a little bit where you probably see many more and then do many more before you start teaching. But to some extent, the uh, the uh, idiom still holds where you have to learn how to extrapolate um, something that you saw and something that you've done a few times to something completely novel. And so that that kind of carries all the way through surgical residency. And for me now, uh, a year in practice, there's a lot of things that I uh, did not see in, in training that I've, I've treated my, myself for the first time in practice. So even, you know, nearly a decade's worth of, of postgraduate training cannot necessarily prepare you for every eventuality, uh, but you need to have a, a strong basis and fundamentals uh, to, to uh, use as a springboard. Right. And it almost seems like the approach you have for learning medical theory is different from how you learn surgical technique or any skill for that matter. It's almost like an athlete, right? Um, an athlete has to be very proficient with their skills. They have to hone in on certain techniques that they continually refine and do the repetitions to become an expert at. 
So I just wanted to ask you uh, if you could share your philosophy on skill development and how you sustain motivation and progress in, in a field that demands continuous learning and growth. Yeah, it, it very much is uh, similar to athletics uh, or it doesn't have to be athletics, but other kind of uh, physical um, kind of um, uh, motor linked to psychological endeavors. And so um, where in the place where I did my fellowship at, at the Barrow uh, Neurological Institute, that's kind of part of, of the ethos is uh, uh, they, they try to train as, as surgeon athletes, um, both inside and outside the OR. And uh, even though I wasn't there for residency per se, I, I kind of embodied that to some extent, always kind of thinking about, you know, uh, what moves can I practice? What moves can I practice before I see them in, in game time? And so um, I think it was right, I guess it was the 2014 finals, uh, NBA finals would have been when I was an intern and, um, you know, the famous Ray Allen shot. Um, where he he takes three back pedals back in Game Six of the NBA Finals and and just takes a shot without even looking at where his feet are, and you know if he, when when asked after the game like how he made that shot to push the game to overtime, he said like I've taken that shot a thousand times in practice. I didn't even have to think about it, and so he knew that if he back pedaled three times exactly as as he had, he would be right behind the three point line in the corner, and there's only two you know two feet for that corner three that you can be in, and and he took the shot and he made it, and so. Um, you know, taking that kind of a concept to surgery, if you practice a surgery that is maybe is extremely hard in some sort of a model, or you think through what would I do in this type of situation if something happened, you learn to manage a complication well ahead of time. And so it just takes the stress out of things. Um, so uh, philosophy on skill development, I guess that means uh, you can practice skills outside the OR. You don't have to always be in the operating room to practice. Because like being in the operating room is like a, it's a special time. It's a gift. And, you know, I, at times I, I think I would love to be in the operating room 24-7, even though my body wouldn't be able to handle it. Um, but uh, I can practice not on people um, and, and practice different maneuvers, practice different techniques um, outside the OR, and that helps develop my skills. Another philosophy is kind of, um, I, I talked uh, about extrapolating uh, a certain skill or extrapolating knowledge uh, to a novel situation. And so, um, you know, an, a, a concrete example for, for me is there is a, there's been obviously a, a major change in the way aneurysms are treated, uh, worldwide. And we tend to treat most aneurysms, uh, with an endovascular approach now, which is appropriate. It's less, uh, less invasive when it can be done and, uh, patients heal up really nicely. Uh, and for the audience that don't know what endovascular is, could you uh, explain that a little further? Sure. Uh, so uh, basically aneurysms can be treated one of two ways. One is uh, what we call open vascular, where we would do a craniotomy, open a window of bone uh, and sneak underneath uh, the brain and, and actually put a clip on the outside of the artery or uh, on the outside of the aneurysm. The alternative to that is to go from the inside of the artery, um, so make a small puncture somewhere peripherally like the, like the wrist or the groin and um, thread small wires and catheters on the inside of the artery and then seal it shut um, from the inside. So that, uh, that uh, second approach is, is the, the less invasive one I'm talking about. But <clears throat> there's a balance between these two because as we gain proficiency with one skill, it's actually taking away cases um, from, from the other hand, which is to treat them with an open vascular technique. 
And so for my generation of cerebrovascular neurosurgeons, it's been uh, somewhat difficult to gain that um, expertise with a fewer number of cases. So uh, the, the, the folks who train me in, in aneurysm surgery, uh, in residency and in fellowship, you know, uh, by the end of their residency fellowship time, they had done uh, probably double, maybe triple the number of open aneurysm cases that I had in training. And uh, that's something that it requires a lot of concerted effort to overcome. And so my way of overcoming that in, in residency was, well, I'm doing all of these other types of neurosurgery cases. I need to try to learn as much about aneurysm surgery as I can from a non-aneurysm case. So for me, you know, the, the microdissection that comes with taking out a brain tumor, um, learning how to dissect the vessels around um, another lesion, uh, in epilepsy surgery, learning how to kind of keep normal anatomy exactly as it is and only, you know, work on the part of the brain that you're in. Um, when doing um, a procedure called a vagus nerve stimulator, um, which is in the neck, you know, take that as an extrapolation of how to quickly expose the carotid artery if needed for emergencies. Um, so each of these have like a corollary and a link back to some staple of, of classic aneurysm surgery. And so even though I wasn't doing aneurysm surgery on a, you know, a daily basis, um, I could be learning about how to do some aspect of aneurysm surgery from each of those other cases. So that's, that's a way of kind of extrapolating your skill. Um, on the endovascular side, that applies too. So if uh, you may not be doing multiple endovascular uh, aneurysm treatments in a day, but you may do <clears throat> several strokes per week in the middle of the night. And so that teaches you how to get quick access, work with microwires inside the brain, and those skills can be extrapolated to the aneurysm skills that are done in the, in the light of day. Um, so there, there's always some sort of corollary and, and you need to learn how to extrapolate skills from one, one realm to the other, um, to, to kind of accelerate your, your learning. So it seems that all, you're almost finding overlap with the techniques and skills involved with treating aneurysms across other, uh, techniques, treating other various disorders. And you're applying that with, within like a limited scope of cases that you have based on like the current landscape of neurosurgery. So how did you build that skill? What was the cognitive process involved with developing such an acumen for that? Uh, I, I think uh, it's sort of a natural ability that everyone has. I, I don't think it's anything special about me. It's um, something that was born out of need because like I said, you know, we weren't doing as many aneurysm cases as could whet my appetite in, in residency. And, um, and I, and I felt like I wanted to enjoy the case. And so if I thought of the case as a vascular case, or I thought of the case as a, as an aneurysm case that gave me a little extra boost of joy and, uh, enthusiasm and energy. <clears throat> and so by doing that, uh, then it naturally made me kind of start to think of it this way. And then I noticed as I started to do my aneurysm cases more as a chief that uh, I, I had kind of naturally uh, instilled those those concepts. And so I wouldn't say like it didn't start as a um, w with a ton of forethought. It, it was kind of a, a way to cope with the uh, disappointment of not doing as many aneurysms as I wanted to. Uh, but then eventually I saw that this was a real skill and then I, and then I went through it um, a little bit more um, with, with foresight um, on like the probably probably during my chief year or like the second half of residency. And as you progressed along this, how did you measure your progress? 
to some extent, I, you know, I, I would definitely seek out feedback from uh, my mentors or my my attendings at the end of cases, trying to see if like there was something I could have done better. Um, I tried to scrub frequently with more senior residents to get a sense of like a benchmark of where I could be in a couple of years. And so to me, it was like, I would look at people that I really admired in our residency and say, well, I, I, that's, that's the bar to beat in two years. And then I would try to catch that. And then, um, then I got to that point and then I said, who's, who's two years ahead and now where, where is he or she at now? And then try to catch that in terms of what, what cases were they proficient at? What did they feel confident in and, and not? So if you kind of take that bit of an active role in your training, um, I think that that helps a lot. But with this new field of AI video analysis, I think that's something that can that is coming and is probably it, it, it's nearly live. And in, in a couple of years, I, I, I think it's going to revolutionize surgical education and evaluation. So a friend of mine, Dan Donahoe, he's a um, he's a pediatric neurosurgeon um, at um, down in Washington D.C. And so he uh, started doing this kinds of re- this kind of research uh, when he, when he was a resident. And so his first kind of example of of how to do that was he had a um, he had a, a model that simulated a carotid injury uh, during an endoscopic endonasal surgery. So this is where you have a um, an endoscope inside the nose and you're trying to take out a pituitary tumor and just to the side of you a few millimeters away is the carotid artery and so one of the feared complications of that surgery is injuring the carotid artery you know through the nose when it's a very difficult small corridor to control bleeding in so um they had this this kind of uh perfused live head model um where it was like essentially a cadaver model that was actively perfused and um, they would simulate what an injury was like. And then they would put people through this experience of trying to control that bleeding and tamponade things. And they'd see kind of how quickly do they respond and, and how you know, adept were, were their movements. And they did a, a, you know, an AI-based analysis of these movements. And in that, the, you know, their software thing that they put together was able to actually like track the, the instruments where they were and then all kinds of other metrics. And so uh, that's just a, a tiny little sample of, of what could be possible. And so I think, how do you know when you're good? Well, there's probably a benchmark of what's good, right? So you could say you're at PGY3 learning how to do an ACDF. Well, you watch your video of doing the ACDF and there's a few different metrics there on the board of how the PGY5 or the attending did the ACDF. And then you know what you have to do to improve, right? You know where you spent too much time, you know which movements were uh, extraneous and which ones were not. You knew where you should put more force, where you should put less force. It can measure all those things, and so we're we're almost there. It's it's an active area of, of um, Dan's research, but um, I, I think that's going to be something that's revolutionary, all surgical fields and especially neurosurgery, where we, you know, we want people to be able to hit these benchmarks before they move on to the next step. Uh, if you can know that. By, by real video analysis, that, that's the ultimate marker of, of whether you know, you've, you've made it to this step as a surgeon. I think that's very interesting just because uh, from like an objective standpoint, you have markers to actually assess your progress. How do you see technology like this being incorporated into surgical education and skills development? So I, I think the you know already we have what are called milestones in neurosurgery, and so the way that the um, ACGME looks at 
um, your progress in surgery uh, or in residency is whether you've hit these certain milestones. And they're kind of worded a little bit more vaguely, right? Like, um, uh, you know, proficient at uh, managing simple version uh, or simple craniotomy and minor complications or able to, uh, you know, handle severe complications and teach others or like whatever, something like that. Uh, but I can envision a scenario in which it's more rigorous and maybe the ACG me will or won't adapt that, but it, certainly at a residency program level, you can, where we can say, well, before you become chief resident at, you know, University of Pennsylvania, um, you will, uh, you know, submit your video and show, yeah, I can do a ACDF independently. I can do this brain tumor craniotomy with, you know, putting low levels of traction on the surrounding brain. Um, so you can have these kinds of metrics to progress. And then <clears throat> probably in an even shorter feedback loop, it's not just important for like kind of going to the next level, but when you're at this certain level in order to improve, the easier we can make getting feedback from surgical video, the better. And so, um, the best version of, of that right now is <clears throat> when you can stream your own operative video essentially right after the case. It's something that we have um, nearly streamlined here at UPenn where um, after the case, um, uh, we have some text that will upload it to, a, to um, the uh, cloud drive and then I can just watch it from my office uh, or you know, pull it for teaching video um, the next week with the residents. And, uh, and, and that, that's similar to what we had at the Barrow when I was a fellow, where Dr. Lawton would essentially scroll through the video um, at the end of the case with the, uh, with the residents, like in a kind of teaching format in the auditorium, and actually walk through the video and say, well, you see how this was uh, impeding our view. We should have taken more bone there. Or uh, you were kind of veering to the left here. You know, the artery should have been more to the right, stuff like that. And so you get like near real-time feedback. And so that's kind of what it takes to make the, the, the leaps of w w within a certain level, right? To go from like sort of proficient to really proficient at a certain case is like you need that kind of nuanced feedback as opposed to, yeah, you, you didn't dissect well enough. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> so, so you need some, some, some kind of detailed feedback. And so shortening the length of the feedback arc from when you did something to when you know that that wasn't quite useful, uh, like like when you made a certain move to knowing that like that was the wrong thing to do, um, that needs to be very quick, or or knowing that you didn't do a good job on that particular case needs to you need to know that pretty quickly to be able to change for the next time. So um, so immediate access and then kind of like very so immediate access to video um, and then immediate video analysis right so. You know, you might have a case where like the video is like six hours and it's very hard to go through those six hours where you're kind of struggling for a lot of it and you're just sucking some tumor till the critical, you know, five minutes of it where you were dissecting the nerve off of a tumor. That's what really matters, not the debulking of the tumor for a couple hours. Yeah, I hear uh, the theme of graduated responsibility uh, being common amongst uh, just neurosurgical training. And so I guess you have a certain skill that you feel comfortable with. And once you feel comfortable with that, you progress to the next one. But in terms of actually becoming comfortable with that skill before you graduate to the next one and having a faster, I guess, learning uh, growth process, uh, what 
techniques or principles did you uh, follow to be able to do that? So I, for me, I guess it was, it was preparation. So <clears throat> at the beginning of residency, I, you don't really have a ton of time to prepare for each case. You're just, you, you go to the case and then you kind of uh, go along for the ride with the attending to some extent, um, you know, partially because uh, there, there's so much other work that you're trying to juggle simultaneously, taking care of patients in the ICU and the floor. But then once that weight kind of comes off your shoulders and, and each residency is a little bit different, I think here at Penn, that's um, probably as a PGY-4, that seems to happen. Um, and uh, at Baylor, it was something similar between four and five, you start to not have quite as much day-to-day -day responsibility of taking care of the patients and you can focus in on your surgical cases. And uh, just uh, you know, preparing, knowing the anatomy, uh, rehearsing the steps of, of surgery um, uh, either the night before, the morning of, waiting for anesthesia to set up, then um, you can kind of be be ready to go. And so after that, it, it tends to come, you know, somewhat naturally. You, you just keep a close eye and, and focus on what, what the attending's doing and just try to mirror it. Um, and so I think it's just a matter of putting your yourself in the in the right position. So if you're prepared... And you kind of know what the attending is going to do already because you either you, you read the attending's paper on the topic before, you've scrubbed with that attending, and you kind of looked at what would, what would only be different for this case. Then when you're watching the attending, you can be completely attentive. Your, your eyes aren't roaming. Uh, you're not trying to think of like what the next step is. Or, or, or rather, you're not trying to think of like what's actually going on here uh, because – you already know what the next step is because you've you've thought about that case the night before, so and then you're watching. You're just saying you're picking up the nuances of how they handle the tissue, you know, um, you know how they handle bleeding, small little things, and you can focus on on those details. And then you immediately mirror them when you do your side of the surgery. So, um, I mean, just like anything, it's not like there's some special sauce, but that kind of preparation um, puts you in a place where uh, the eyes can see what the mind already knows. And the process itself seems like an uphill battle where you have to go through a lot physically and mentally to be able to uh, successfully finish neurosurgery residency, but also develop the techniques and skills to be a proficient surgeon. And so when you fell short of your goals uh, that you set, your, set for yourself, because I feel like med students in general, but also people going to neurosurgery, they're super type A, go get them. Uh, and in terms of when you set these uh, goals for yourself and you don't actually achieve them or you fall short of them, uh, how do you sustain the motivation to keep pushing through? Well, I mean, I think uh, ultimately it came for me as like, a, you know, I, I didn't want to be a, a disappointment for my future patients. Um, so obviously I have my own ego and, and intrinsic motivation um, uh, born out of, um, you know, uh, you know, comp competitive drive, I guess. Uh, but at the same time, especially got a little bit later, it wasn't so much the competitive drive. I felt like it was, um, it, wanting to be worthy. Um, so, uh, you know, I wanted to be worthy of, uh, going to my fellowship and being at a high level, not just sufficient. And I wanted to be worthy of, you know, the future job I now have of, of getting to treat patients here. And so, it was like, am I ready to do this on my own? And if not, then, you know, back to the books, got to, got to double down even harder. So that's how I found the, 
that's how I found the motivation. How did I actually practically go about it when I fell short? I think I definitely fell short plenty of times, you know, um, even to this day, like I might do a case and I did a good job and the uh, patient's doing great. Uh, but I feel like I could have done it smoother. I didn't have to struggle quite as much. Uh, could have been faster. Um, could have been less invasive. Didn't need uh, this extra piece of exposure that I that I exposed. Right? There's there's always like minor nuances um, that you can do, and then it might be even macro nuances where I did a case and I had to call the attending in earlier than I wanted to because I wasn't able to do a couple steps independently yet. And so, um, I mean, I don't think you can beat yourself up too much about, uh, about it, but you can also like, if, if you've put in an honest effort, um, uh, lean on your mentors to kind of tell you, you know, um, how to improve and, and, and give you the tips. That's, that's what the faculty are here for. And so, um, as long as I kind of tried hard, even if I fell short a little bit, you know, try not to be too hard on yourself and give yourself room for improvement because it's a long road. Okay. And I wanted to shift focus a little bit on cerebrovascular neurosurgery. Um, you characterize it as a field that uh, requires a lot of out, lot out of you in terms of emotionality. Uh, it's characterized by high highs and low lows. Um, and when you add this uh, emotional layer to it, um, on top of needing to develop very precise skill at microsurgery, um, how do you go about fluctuating emotional states and leveraging them to continue learning and developing your surgical skills? I think it's a, it's a skill um, that kind of like emotional control is, is something that you kind of develop from intern year uh, in neurosurgery, right? We see, you know, bad brain trauma, spinal cord injury, uh, GBMs. There, there's, there's plenty of uh, kind of badness in, in neurosurgery that um, uh, can pull at your heartstrings uh, in a good way at times and then, and then really gut you uh, at other times. And so from, from, from the get-go, you're kind of in that position where you need to learn to manage that and, and get on with treating the next patient. It's accentuated for sure, I think, in cerebrovascular because it's, it's so dramatic, um, when things go wrong and, um, and, and it's just a really sweet feeling because the elegance of the surgery when it goes well is, is, um, thrilling. Um, but, but I think it exists to some extent in all domains of neurosurgery. And so as we go with time, you just, um, you, you just kind of learn to, uh, box it in a little bit and focus on the next patient, but every neurosurgeon, um, you know, has a story of, of how they felt almost like unable to operate the next day after um, a bad complication. I remember all of mine. Um, you know, I, I always have gone back to do the next case, um, uh, but it, it's um, it requires a lot of active effort to put it out of your mind and do the next case with a with a clear mind as much as possible. So, um, how do you how do you develop it? Well. I mean, I, I've looked at to some of my mentors, you know, the ones who really taught me aneurysm surgery in particular. I think so. so that would be Dr. Gopinath um, at, uh, at at Baylor, Dr. Can and at at, um, at Baylor, and then Dr. Lawton. All three of them had kind of different ways that they dealt with complications, um, but in the moment, like they all had like Im impeccable emotional control. So in the moment of a complication. Um, or after talking to the family, like they, they were able to like, you know, uh, make it through the turbulence. 
And so I just try to mirror that as much as possible. I feel like I definitely have much bigger swings um, than any of them did. Um, but um, Gopinath in particular, Dr. Gopinath would like talk about like, if you, if you let the highest high kind of like swing very high, the lowest low is going to hit you just as much. And so he would be like, you know, push this concept of equanimity of like kind of controlling your emotions. So even when you have like a great win, just be humble. Don't let it get to you too much. Enjoy it for sure. Um, but if you just kind of um, let your emotions get the best of you, it swings up and then and then it countercorrects uh, even equally strongly. So um, I think I think that's part of it. The other part of it is is um, balancing it with like how you connect with families or how you um, uh, just re remembering that you have wins at times and kind of leaning back on on if something goes wrong well you had a good connection with the family you talked to them you did it the right way and so yes it hurts because you knew that person was a person and if you caused a complication it burns a little bit um, but at the very least you can find some solace in knowing that you you went about it the right way um, with the family and the patient and something I really respect and hope to emulate about you is how emotionally in tune and in control of your mind you are in the OR. That's something I really respect. And I feel like it takes a lot of work to get to that point. So I'm curious, how were you in uh, medical school in terms of your personality, college, med school, and how did that progress from med school to residency to now? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, like like any, any other normal person, like you kind of mature with time uh, as you go through your 20s and 30s. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, you could have taken like 20 year old me and put him through a nurse surgery residency and probably come out, uh, a equally adept surgeon, but some of these other things, it, you know, the seven years is a maturing, um, time, not just, uh, technically, but also, uh, emotionally and mentally, um, to kind of build that fortitude, um, and, uh, presence. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it just, it takes time to sort of build and you need to have, um, uh, been through some tough times, uh, which any neurosurgery residency will put you through and then, um, and then you mature as a result. And so that, that's kind of where that comes from is like when you've seen numerous, numerous complications, when you've experienced what an intraoperative aneurysm rupture feels like, and then, you know, for me, like I've thought about it and I've written about it of, of like the, the philosophy and the thought process behind intraoperative rupture. And so when I have encountered one, it, it's, it's not a big deal. Um, you know, I, I just think about, uh, what the next step is and approach it that way. And, you know, don't think about what the complication is, just kind of go through your process and do it the, you know, do it the way that you rehearsed. And with the Strive podcast, we aim to inspire our audience by sharing stories of resilience and strength in the face of adversity. Uh, could you recount particular low points in your career that shaped you to be the person and surgeon you are today? Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I remember, you know, uh, most surgeons will say like, you know, you uh, you forget all the wins and, and you remember all the, all the complications at the end of things. And so uh, I remember... Um, uh, you know, a lot of my complications. And so it's a balance of sort of like having the courage to kind of continue and still take on challenging cases and, and push yourself uh, a little bit outside your comfort zone. So you keep getting better and you can treat more people. Um, and, um, and, you know, uh, 
accepting the humility that needs to come from, from having said complication. And so behind you, actually in the office, I have two scans of uh, patients, both with very challenging diseases. Um, and so one is a case that I had from fellowship and um, it's a case I saw Dr. Lawton do and it, you know, it's a very, very dangerous aneurysm. And um, you know, unfortunately, um, the natural history was challenging as well, but um, didn't have a great outcome. But uh, my co-fellow, uh, Chris Graffio, uh, made this for me as a present uh, with the words from Dune, uh, that fear is the mind killer. And so looking at that kind of a case and being too scared to take it on and, and offer the patient some hope or some ability for treatment, um, it, it, you know, it, it's going to block your mind. It's going to, you know, it's a mind killer, right? And, um, and then on the, on the flip side, I, I have a, a patient, uh, that I had a complication with, um, and I, and I have that scan there in my office that says primum no nocere, which is, you know, do no harm. And so, uh, I try to balance these things of, of having, uh, the courage and confidence to take on challenging cases and, and continue to treat people every day. Um, but, uh, also remembering that there's a limit to my abilities and, um, you know, the whole career is, is finding where each of those, uh, borders exist. And in terms of advice that you could give uh, someone maybe not in neurosurgery or medicine uh, for technical skills development, uh, what would you suggest? So, I mean, like, you know, neurosurgeons have, have tried to kind of figure out what what skills translate well and, and what, what don't. Neurosurgeons or uh, all, all surgeons to some extent, right? So, um, you know, there, there are uh, residency programs that... Uh, really like people who played the piano because they think the, the kind of finger skills and, and, um, translation by manual dexterity, uh, translates well from, you know, playing the piano to, um, to surgery, uh, uh, video games, obviously there, you, you know, you, you read the news, the late, late press all the time. There's always some discussion about, an, um, you know, a study that showed, um, video game skill, uh, translating to surgery and, um, and then athletics, um, so I, I think each of these kinds of things like works, but if you want to be a good surgeon, you shouldn't just like start playing video games. Like the point is like, if you're good at video games, then like, yeah, maybe that skill translates, but I'm not sure like actively playing video games uh, as opposed to doing something else really translates to being a good surgeon. But these are all things that like, if they are already part of your life, um, it, it's good to appreciate and maybe scale them up. Right. So, um, individual sports are good in a way because, um, you're alone on the court or, you know, for me, I like, you know, hiking and, and trail running. And so, um, uh, that kind of puts me in a peaceful place that helps me for my research. It helps me just like, kind of like get rid of the, the stress of the day for, um, and, uh, it clears my mind really well. Um, I see and, your Strava updates on yeah, Twitter. I'm yeah. jealous. I, I want to get into running, but it's so difficult. It's it, it's tough. I started uh, during the the pandemic when my gym closed, and then I had nothing better to do than run. So, um, so so then so in that sense, like individual, um, you know, sports kind of play that role. Um, and 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 you know, if it's like you know one on one tennis, for example, it 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 feels like a competitive drive. So. Th that's important in, in, in a surgeon. Um, team sports are also important, right? So as much as it seems like, you know, surgeon microscope versus aneurysm, um, you know, really it's, it's, it's a team sport. Residency is a team sport. And so people who, uh, were on, on teams, like you can tell, right? Like, uh, 
if someone was um, in the military and was part of a squadron and you, you can kind of tell that in a resident, like they know how to work in that team and, and kind of divvy up responsibility and, and back each other up, that kind of thing. Um, so, and that can be part of any kind of team. And then, um, and then in terms of the technical skill development, like I always used to wonder when I was a med student and, and college student, like, you know, do I have the hands? Like, I don't know if I have the hands or not. I still don't know if I have the hands or not. Right. But I think most people, like if you're reasonably adept and you don't have, you know, uh, two left thumbs, like you can learn to operate. It's just a matter of effort. There, there's a small handful of people that are particularly gifted, um, that, uh, can scale up really quickly and learn from very minimal experience. Like they just get it the first time. But let's say that's 5% of the population. I've, I've seen one or two people like that who can just watch something and then they're, they're just able to do it the first time. I'm not like that, I don't think, but I can usually do it the second or the third time. And that's probably all you need, you know, um, to be a, a good surgeon um, and just kind of scale and learn from from the experiences you have. But what, what do you do right now if you want to be a good surgeon? Well, um, it starts with a really good knowledge base and it starts with kind of stamina and endurance. Um, so however you want to build that, but like being very happy spending 18 hours in the hospital straight, um, you know, that you can kind of, it just builds from like, um, you know, you spend 18 hours studying straight, right? Um, I would do that in med school. And, and so I was like, okay, well, 18 hours in the hospital is a lot more fun than 18 hours with a book. So that's how it kind of changed over time, I guess. And, yeah. and, and 18 hours under the microscope is a lot more fun to me than 18 hours, you know, on the wards or, you know, doing rounds. The one thing I noticed or realized once I came into the OR and shadowed was that standing up for long periods actually requires work. Yeah, yeah, burns calories, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank you for the advice. Um, and to conclude this episode, uh, looking ahead on your journey of technical skill development and pursuit of surgical excellence, what aspirations and goals are you striving for in the coming years? Well, I, I mean, I have um, a list of, of, of types of cases that I would like to take on, uh, things that I saw. Um, uh, on, especially on the open surgical side that uh, I would like to be able to technically achieve, but it's just a matter of having the right patient that needs that, but I want to be ready when the time comes. So, uh, that includes sort of, uh, you know, practice in the cadaver lab, or I, I, I sort of just kind of practice on my own with, uh, my own microsurgical kit in the office, um, of, of being ready to take on, you know, a challenging bypass, um, and things like that. So, um, so I, you know, I have some like technical goals like that and, and then just achieving, um, or amassing like, you know, a large amount of experience, um, both on the microsurgical side and the endovascular side. Um, so, you know, I, I track my numbers and, um, I write about a couple lines for every case of what I did right, what I didn't and, um, and just kind of inch forward. Um, but the goals I guess are, are kind of being able to treat anything within my little realm of neurosurgery of, of vascular and these kinds of dis challenging disorders, you know, I, I want to be, um, worthy of being kind of like the, the last stop. So, um, I, I, that's kind of an extrapolation, I guess, from the, the AOA motto is like, uh, to be worthy of, of, uh, treating the suffering. And so, 
you know, I think that extrapolates to neurosurgery, like to be worthy of, of taking on the most challenging diseases and, um, and, and offering safe treatment for them. You left me with a lot to think about and hopefully the audience as well. Dr. Srinivasan, thank you for coming on the Strive podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you.